0: Hey, folks, a couple of quick announcements. First, Jim and I have a whole series of talks about the rides that Disney never built over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Most of these shows are almost an hour long, and they cover everything from Animal Kingdom's Beastly Kingdom rides to the unbuilt Muppet restaurant to floating theme parks on an aircraft carrier to Disneyland Australia. Check those out at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Second, Jim and I are doing a live event in Walt Disney World in 2017. The dates are November 10th through the 13th. And we'll be putting more information at our travel partners website, storybookdestinations.com/slash Disney Dish. We plan to spend those couple of days walking through the parks and telling stories. Pandora should be open by then, and we plan to have lots of stories about that. Visit storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish to join us. And now on with the show. All right, welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa. Let me welcome in one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: I'm not bad, not bad yourself.
0: Uh, Really not bad at all. It's uh, starting to warm up here a little bit. It's going going fairly well. I just realized that this is our first show for March and that our show on the 15th will be actually on the Ides of March.
1: We'll be recording in my bunker. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) Exactly. All right. So, Jim, uh, this is a continuation of our chronological Disneyland story, right?
1: Yeah, and again, gonna you know, just I apologize, because the last time we did this one, I just checked, we recorded our last show in this series back in September of 2016.
0: And <laughs> well, we've had a lot of stuff to do since then. We've, we've been doing the unbuilt
1: stuff. You went to the Buzz Price Archive at the Rosen Center in fall, found all of this amazing stuff, and you know, you had all those great unbuilt Disney stories, and ironically enough, what we're about to get into in the chronological Disney thing, touching on Westcott and Port Disney and the Disney Seas Park... These are too huge on built Disney projects, so it's a weird sort of continuation of a theme. But that said, the idea of building a second attraction of size in Anaheim isn't exactly a new idea.
0: All right, so in order to talk about what happens in 1990, we have to go back, Jim, to 1960. From the period 1940 to 1960, home ownership in the United States increased by approximately 50%. Uh, in 1940, about one in, out of every 2.5 people owned a house. By 1960, it's almost 62%, so two-thirds of Americans.
1: And that's that's the GI Bill, isn't it? Or it was, there were two.
0: Yes. Yeah, so there were two huge construction booms. They both happened between 1940 and 1960. One was after World War II when soldiers came home and the GI Bill provided them with all kinds of subsidized mortgages. And by mm-hmm. the way, subsidized mortgages had previously not been available. Also, mortgages over terms of like 20 or 30 years. Previously, a mortgage could have been as little as five years. That was typical. Wow. The next big boom started in the late 1950s, and it was driven by two sort of really big societal and economic factors. One was, after seeing the success of the GI Bill mortgages, more banks became comfortable with the concept of a 30-year loan, and so they started extending that kind of business to families who are not already qualified through the GIBL. And that also helped increase home sales. But the second big thing, and the thing that's going to lead us into Disney, it was the fact that most of the housing stock, most of the homes available in the United States around 1960, were built from the, around the 1920s or earlier. And the reason is is that there were not a lot of people building new homes during the 1930s because of the Great Depression. And nobody was building homes in the early 40s because of World War II. You simply couldn't get the material to do it. In fact, the actual US housing supply dropped between 1930 and 1940. And the number of houses in the United States with things like complete indoor plumbing didn't hit the 50% mark until the middle of the 1950s. Wow. Yeah. So you've got this huge home construction boom. You've got this huge home remodeling boom. The other thing that happened was, and we've talked about this before the influence, the space race. Mm-hmm. So, Walt had already shown the, the Monsanto, House of the Future, in Tomorrowland in, uh, in June of 1957. And it was sort of like, you know, a curiosity. Four months later, though, the Soviet Union, in October 1957, they launched Sputnik. And you, you've talked about this before, about how Disney's business went from Frontierland, Davy Crockett, to let's explore space virtually overnight. That's what happened. Sputnik launches. All of a sudden, we are the culture of the future. So, the public becomes... Especially young adults become fascinated with anything new and anything modern. So you combine all of these things. You've got this strong interest in home ownership. You've got a lot of aging homes, and you've got a, bunch, a lot of people looking for something new. Trade shows start to pop up all over the country. In fact, Walt notices this, and he sends out people to see what the fuss is about at the trade shows. And the reason why we know this is the people who went to the trade shows brought back the brochures and they're in the Buzz Price archives. Jeez. So you literally see this thing. There's this entire brochure. It's called Popular Mechanics Award-Winning House of Built-Ins. If anyone is out in Woodland Hills, California, it was at 5241 Del Moreno Drive. But it's got all of these interesting things like solar-heated pools, big floor-to-ceiling windows, the phrase exotic master baths with sunken Roman tubs and golden features. I mean, all kinds of things that you wouldn't have previously put into a house, now everything's possible. They've got special rooms for childrens, all kinds of stuff on how to remodel homes. But in terms of like electrical conveniences, I feel like we're selling Carousel of Progress here, Jim. Mm-hmm. But electrical blankets, oven hoods with built-in fans, rotisserie things, you know, alarm clocks, electric coffee brewers. So Disney sends these things out. In fact, the uh, the LA Memorial Sports Arena was once used for a huge event, even boat shows. I mean, they were just all over. Not only do these shows catch a Walt's attention, but if you look at what the people who organize the trade shows, if you look at what they're advertising to the sponsors, it's two big things. One, hundreds of thousands of people attend these things. And two, sales to the trade and to consumers in the millions of dollars. And that's what Walt is interested in there. Because remember, after Disneyland had launched, he realizes he's essentially in a race with himself where every year or every two years, he's got to offer something new to people so they keep coming back. In fact, that's exactly what happens to Disney today, right? Mm-hmm. Once you once you build a theme park, you just keep building it and building it and building it. When Walt said that Walt Disney World would never be done, he meant that both as a promise and a uh, a burden. Mm -hmm. For himself, right? We'll never be done with this. So, Walt brings these people in. They go to the trade shows. They try and figure out what they're going to do. And so, by late summer 1962, they have a basic outline for this thing that they were calling at the time California Living. And, Jim, let me say, it was massive. Walt does this right. Walt thinks in scales that nobody else thinks about. It was on a scale that no one had considered. It was going to have... Three different terrain areas, not houses. Three different lands, if you will, all distinctly Californian. One was called the Mountain Resort Area. Another one was called the Beach and Marina Area. And then a third one was the Desert Area. Each of the areas was going to be built around a hub, kind of like Disneyland was built around a hub, that held special events and exhibits. In fact, these things were so big that one of the exhibits was going to be the ice capes. (laughs) The the idea was like when we're not running home shows or if we're running home shows and we need to bring people in, we could do dog shows, we could do car shows, we could do boating shows, sportsman shows, mobile home shows. And the idea was that you would go into these individual lands just like you go uh, through Disneyland right now down Main Street, which is essentially a shopping area. So let me just give you an idea of how big these things were. I'm going to give you an explanation of each of the areas. The mountain resort area would contain a mountain range with actual waterfalls a small gauge railroad, mountain cabins, and lakeside model homes. So they were actually going to build a mountain range and a lake just for this one area. It was also going to include a couple of restaurants. One built like a hunting lodge, and then one could be sort of like Alps-ish in design. Walt used the word Tyrolean, which I admit, Jim, I had to look up. Mm-hmm. It means uh, from the Alps. It actually would have lakes around it for boating, canoeing, fishing, and more. And the idea was that you could actually test the boat or the canoe or go fishing with the new fishing gear you were thinking about buying. There was also a camping area with trailers, cars, campers, and tents. So, Jim, let me, let me just stop right here. Step one, build a mountain. <laughs> Walt, no one ever accused Walt of, of dreaming small, Right.
1: Well, and, and remember, you're talking 62. This is three years after they did the Matterhorn, and they lived to the tell the tale on that one, and were obviously going to apply the, the lessons... The fishing thing, which they actually used to do that on the rivers of America until the janitorial staff kind of stepped in and said, you understand that when you let them take the fish, they don't necessarily take the fish with them, that they leave them (laughs) in the park. We don't find them for a couple of days. The the, the way we find them is through smell. There you (laughs) go.
0: All right. So, the, again, the idea with the mountain resort, there would be shows that were specific mm-hmm. to the mountain resort. So, things like literally they mentioned yodeling, folk dancing, and skeet shooting, which I can only imagine to the residents of California are something that they are not normally used to in their neighborhoods. My favorite idea, though, mm-hmm. was that during slow times of the year, the mountain resort area would turn into, and I'm not kidding here, I will quote it, a camp for underprivileged youngsters – Wow. Wow. <laughs> There's just a lot going I think this was one of those they, – they, they so we have the actual memo, right, written on, on actual carbon paper. I'm looking at the memo and I'm thinking this is one of those three martini lunch kind of ideas. <laughs> right? I mean it used to be a thing, right? It used to be a thing. Okay. The mm-hmm. next area was the beach and marina area. They would have model beach homes and I'm not kidding, yachts and cruisers for family living. So again, you have to have a waterway that's big enough to put these things on. Their restaurants, they were considering an underwater seafood bar and another kind of sort of Polynesian architecture for the restaurant. In terms of exhibitions, they were looking at skin diving, which was, I guess, before either scuba or snorkeling, power boating and sailboating, surfing. And they actually had a little debate in the memo on whether they could create breakers large enough to do the surfing, we know that, again they tried it ten years later in Walt World. Oh
1: my God!
0: Marlin fishing, including mechanically simulating the hook-up, and I'm quoting here: the hook-up and thrill of fighting a marlin swordfish, and then more camping.
1: It strikes me funny, it, as you mentioned, the underwater restaurant. You got to understand that. When Pleasure Island was initially announced back in 87, one of the key components of that was Madison's Dive, where literally this is the year after Splash, the movie has come out. And to go to Pleasure Island and you'd go into this bar that supposedly faced out onto Lake Buena Vista and, and a sea captain would come up and tell tales and but if you're sitting there at the bar, periodically a mermaid would swim up to the window and you know sort of peer in oh, at you and like swim off and Again, no idea ever dies at Disney. Somebody must have remembered that stuffed in a box that buzzes, and like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we could use it again.
0: Could you mention Turtle Talk with Crush, but only with drinks? It would be so much better. <laughs> Come Disney, on, if you, Disney if let listen. me fly around. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So the uh, the third area was uh, the desert area. This one, the memo just kind of went on for about half a page. But they specifically mentioned Palm Springs, Jim, where you and I went. And Walt had, had several homes, right? The spoke to the yeah. So they said homes a la Palm Springs with uh, an outdoor living theme played up big. So the big thing about Palm Springs at the time was that the homes of the time, we mid-century modern, and the big concept in mid-century modern, we've talked about this before, is this blending of indoor and outdoor spaces. So lots of floor to ceiling windows, lots of doors that slide open, allowing, allowing you to go inside or outside at the same time. Tons of patio furniture sales is what Disney projected. Barbecue equipment was going to be big. Swimming pools and all their accessories. Also golf and tennis demonstrations. They even considered holding tennis tournaments there. Also, again, mobile homes and camping They had a couple ideas for restaurants, including a Spanish restaurant. Again, that's very big in Southern California. And a, quote, cook-your-own-steak barbecue place. I'm surprised that that didn't catch on, because I think this actually legitimately could be fun. So they have these ideas, and this is like 1962, but they don't really go anywhere for a couple of years. Disney's working on other projects. They've got the World's Fair... Obviously, in 1964, a lot of people dedicated to that. They're working on movies like a Sword in the Stone, and they're doing pre-production for Mary Poppins. So nothing happens for a couple of years until what gives this project a little kick is this memo that Walt gets saying, Jack Sayers, the director of leases for Disneyland, heard a Monsanto subsidiary, Chemstrand, might be interested because they were doing something similar with, quote, vacation homes and partnering with Sears. Remember, Sears used to be big. Mm-hmm. On the home furnishings, and they were going to do that for 1963. So Walt gets this memo from Jack Sayers saying that he heard somebody at Monsanto talking about the idea. And of course, Walt realizes that if Monsanto or Chemstrand is willing to pay for it with Steers, they'd be willing to pay for it at Disneyland too. So they actually get a copy of the Chemstrand memo that Chemstrand is passing back and forth with Sears, mm-hmm. and they have exactly the same ideas. We're going to do a mountain theme, we're going to do a seashore theme, and we're going to do a desert theme. And, and this lights a fire under Walt, and that means, of course, he lights an even bigger fire under his people. Mm-hmm. Tons of activity happens literally within the next couple of weeks. When they get serious, they realize that they're going to do something with Chemstrand. They can't go out and literally move mountains. So they have to scale the idea back so that it fits in Disneyland. And this is where it becomes the firm proposal for a second gate for Disney. So they call this the vacation living memo. They have a mobile home pavilion with three mobile homes at three different sizes. At least one of them was going to include air conditioning. And and the thing that's notable there was that this is at the very beginning of the U.S. adoption of air conditioning. In some places, fewer than 15% of homes even had a window unit. And here they were talking about air conditioning an entire mobile home. They also had travel trailer pavilions, so the tow-behind kinds of trailers. They had camper pavilions. We call them RVs now. Mm-hmm. They had off-road vehicles, jeeps and stuff like that. Also, they were going to sell pack horses and mule equipment, which I thought was nice. Wow. They even considered demonstrating light aircraft for flying around the desert and a one-man helicopter of the future. So, not a jetpack, Jim, but a one-person helicopter, which I'm sure was perfectly safe <laughs> and would have absolutely no trouble getting Uh-oh. FAA certification. Okay. Sure. The image of this is is simply priceless. Uh They had a camping pavilion. They had a floating pavilion. The idea was that they were going to build a shallow pond in the parking lot, but it was going to be deep enough that they could do water skiing demonstrations. Mm -hmm. They would have three houseboats floating on it. Also, they would have several vacation homes built up in the parking lot. A log cabin, a chalet, a concrete block desert type, and then a one-room cabin. But this actually never gets built. In fact, it dies a pretty quick death after this. By the end of November, it's put on hold indefinitely from, from Disney. Do you do you know why?
1: And, well, there's a number of issues, aren't there? I mean, at this point in the company's history, there's huge chunks of the Disneyland parking lot that it doesn't actually own. It only leases?
0: There's that, yeah. So the idea that the leasees would let you build a lagoon big enough for uh, boating craft and, or houseboats and a water skiing show is somewhat problematic in getting the waivers on that, I think. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think, and this is an interesting memo, but it's from uh, Stan Jones to Card Walker. And essentially, this is Disney's own staff pushing back on the basic idea. And what they're saying is, look, these ideas are fantastic. If we did this, we could do it very well. Does it fit in what what people come to Disneyland for? Mm -hmm. And that's the big internal debate. So Stan Jones starts off this memo and he says, look, I don't normally talk about things in an aesthetic sense. He actually Mm -hmm. uses the words... Yeah, you know, This is sort of outside of my realm, but let me just say that this thing about vacation living is too much about the real world, and people come to Disneyland for its imagination and its yeah, sense of make-believe and its escapism. So you're saying like, the very idea of talking about where to live in Disneyland are two opposite things. So it's that. I think it's the fact that uh, Kempstrand wasn't willing to commit on, I think, the kind of scale that Disney wanted to in order to pay for all of this, and then the fact that they really couldn't acquire all of the space. I think those are three big things that sort of shoot this idea down. So it literally goes from the back burner at the end of summer to the hottest thing in the fall to dead by by the time winter starts in that period. It it, it bloomed very, very fast, and then
1: they moved on to other things. If you think about the number of times when you were mentioning the individual lands and that sort of thing that, you know, the word restaurant came up. I mean, one of the, the things that really drove this was the fact that during this period in Disneyland's history, what would typically happen is people would spend seven hours inside the park and then they'd leave Disneyland and go somewhere else to eat. One document I've got talks about during the same time period, it was driving Disney nuts that they were losing an estimated $1.5 million a year to people who'd leave Disneyland and go over to Knott's and have a chicken dinner.
0: Wow, and they're, they're still serving hundreds of thousands of those chicken dinners.
1: Yeah, and if they walked out the door of the park, and we had this mm-hmm. attraction literally right in the parking lot with ten great restaurants, yeah. the very notion that they'd stay an additional two hours—that's the thing. People forget about Walt is that he was competitive. As much oh, yeah, as yeah. he had a good working relationship with the folks at Not, he was still competitive, and it made him crazy. That Disneyland didn't have a restaurant that made people want to stay in the park, even when Walt put this from a white-hot position to dead last, and on the back burner, he still plucked that component out. And it's like, okay, we're going to circle back on this food idea. We're going to put a great restaurant in the park.
0: It's sort of like filling out a product. You get a product, you see where uh, you build something, you see where the holes are, you plug the holes, and then you then you expand. Right. The thing that I find interesting here at the end of these this series of memos about the design for future living is when they closed up the project, they said, okay, you know, if this isn't going to work, what are some other ideas that we we can use possibly as a second gate to attract people? So I'm just going to go over. I think there are six of them here. One of the other ideas for a second gate was an aviary. Literally, they called it birds of the world. Another one was an aquarium. They called it, not kidding, fish of the world. Uh, A third one was botanical gardens. I'm still not joking. They called it plants and trees of the world. There was a butterfly exhibit. This was Walt's own idea. Another idea was, and I'm quoting here, an international village with exhibits by as many foreign countries as possible, displaying their life and culture. I I don't don't think that'll ever work.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one will go for that idea. (laughs) No
0: one. That's just crazy. And then there's sort of like this last hodgepodge. An inn, a hotel, a museum, a farmer's market, headquarters for the People to People program. The People to People program, I had to look it up, created in 1956 by Eisenhower. It claims it was uh, part of Walt's inspiration for It's a Small World. So those were the the other ideas that they considered for the second gate. But again, nothing goes anywhere for almost three decades, Jim, until 1990.
1: Before we get started here, I have to tell the, the story about it's 84, and Michael Eisner's just been put in charge of the, the Walt Disney Studios, and he persuades Jeffrey Katzenberg to come over from Paramount to help out with the film end of things, and so... The two of them are in Michael's brand new office in the Royal Disney building, which overlooks the animation building. And he basically walks Jeffrey over to the window and points to feature animation and goes, that's your problem. <laughs> Guess what's not my problem? Yeah, you have to figure out how to make that work. They're in the middle of making the Black Cauldron, which is the old Muppet joke, I've seen better film on teeth. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... So the very same thing basically happened with Michael Eisner and Disney's board of directors. They bring him in to ride herd on the company. And as soon as he's installed as chairman and and CEO in in September of 84, they basically point to Epcot and it's like, that's your problem.
0: Really? So the board tells Eisner that it's his problem?
1: Because they had the numbers. Uh, Initially, uh, Disney was really excited about what they were seeing come out of Epcot. In 1980, two years before the park opened, 7.2 7.2 million people who go to Central Florida visit Walt Disney World. By September of 83, first full year of operation for Epcot, mm-hmm. that numbers jumped to 10.5 million, or, you know, 46% increase in, in three years. So that's killer. That's great. Yeah. But the following year, Disney sees this 14% drop-off in attendance at the resort. And the company tries to push it off on weather, and yeah, there were a couple of hurricanes and things that year. But
0: there's a recession going on, yeah.
1: But Disney's own internal survey work shows that this Science and Discovery Park, people who visited it during its first 18 months of operation, they were impressed by the size of the thing, by Mm -hmm. its ambition, but they weren't all that entertained, and that's what they were telling friends and family. (sighs)
0: I visited in that period and I fell in love with it. I don't I don't know what those people were saying.
1: As we saw from the quick flame out of the Density Institute, which you know launched with great fanfare in nineteen ninety six, there's just mm-hmm. people will take extension courses at home. I mean, you know, the courses yeah. online, but it's like I'm on vacation. I don't want to be educated, I want to be entertained and yeah. And so, this is what Eisner was facing. So, he and Frank Wells fly down to the resort in October of 84, and at one point, Eisner and Wells actually appear in front of 4,000 Disney World employees. They, they gather them in front of Cinderella Castle to, quote-unquote, meet the new bosses. And they try to reassure the troops, but here's Eisner. They made a point of visiting every single ride and attraction at the resort to sort of familiarize themselves with, okay, let's get a baseline. What is a Walt Disney World? Eisner couldn't help but notice that when they were they do the Epcot things, they'd come out to the offload area, and Frank Wells would invariably be asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Now, to be fair here, Frank was famous for falling asleep. He could evidently fall asleep on a meat hook. He kept blaming it on jet lag or that sort of thing. But to Eisner's thinking, it's like, I see the money, I see you know, what we spent, I just don't see much as entertaining. And so he he sits down with the Epcot people and they go, Okay, don't worry about it. We we've got a plan. That very month that they were there, they had just launched what was known as the World Fest program. It was gonna be this series of month long programs.
0: Wait, hold on. Month long programs in, in Epcot did it did it
1: involve alcohol or food? Well, there we go. The very really? first I was one. Just, i was just kidding. Did it really? No, <laughs> the yeah, first one was Oktoberfest land. Was it really? Yeah. Oh, and God. then it moves to Italy <laughs> and it's wine-based. And then in December, it's over to the UK. And
0: oh, so one area at a time instead of the entire. <gasps> got, it. Go. Got, it, got it. Got it. Got
1: it. I've got it tracked as far as January when it over to, went over to the China Pavilion. But but this is the thing. that The Eisner's down there. And they take him to the Morocco Pavilion, which had just opened two weeks prior to Eisner coming on board as the new chairman CEO. And he's walking around this thing, and it's like it's wonderful; it looks great. But we spent twenty million dollars on this thing, and it doesn't have a ride.
0: Yeah, that's back when twenty million dollars could actually buy you a ride.
1: Yeah, and so he sits down with the Imagineers, and it's like. We need something big to turn this around. And the, so tell me about that Living Seas Pavilion. It was under construction six months in at this point. It wasn't a whole lot that Eisner could do to fix the thing. But he's like, so tell me this is entertaining. Tell me we can build a promotional campaign for the, the parks around this. One of the things that Eisner did, and Disney had never done this prior to them coming to the tour, was in national commercials promoting the theme park.
0: Really? They hadn't done it prior to this point?
1: The Imagineers have to go to Eisner. It's like... I'm sorry, but it took us a while to get a sponsor for this thing, and by the time we finally convinced United Technologies to fund this thing, and it was a, and remember, this is a ninety million dollar pavilion. They had this giant audio animatronic version of, of Poseidon, who literally pulled back a water curtain, and you got on this omni mover that took you through the ocean floor. And the idea was that after Poseidon introduced you to this world, you were then going to suddenly jump to the future and be at C base alpha to united technologies it's like no we are a future company this isn't future world lose the poseidon thing lose the entertainment we go straight to C base alpha and from my just point of view it's like great it's more bran in a park that's made out of bran <laughs> so his very first annual meeting and he's standing in front of the shareholders in february of 85 he's only been on the job uh, 110 days at this point, And this is when he announces that they've closed the deal with George Lucas. Ah, there we go. Okay. What they announce is he's going to collaborate with the Imagineers on an innovative ride based on Lucas's Star Wars creations that will utilize technologies never before seen in a Disney theme park. Okay. Uh, which and- obviously winds up being Star Tours. But it, further down in the press release, it also mentioned that George has agreed to do more than one attraction for the Disney parks, and that the the second project, we're talking about Captain EO at this point. Mm-hmm. Eisner is looking for quick fixes. Over the holiday period in 84, they actually brought the Disney characters into Epcot, and people just went nuts, because that had been one of the conceits of Epcot right off the bat, that Disney characters would not be in this particular park. When they showed up, people stood in two and three-hour lines, you know, just to see Mickey. It's officially announced that starting in June of 1985, the Disney characters will be in Epcot. But I, I was mm. talking with an old hand, a Disney cast member who'd been with the company since '72. He it wasn't an opening day, but he almost was, and was talking about how Eisner did another one of these, standing in front of the, the troops and trying to reassure them, and. The spring of 85 and he's standing there and mickey comes out and the entire crowd reacts in shock because it's like they have been drilled into the disney characters do not come in this park right like has has eisner told him that that (laughs) anybody told eisner that he's not supposed to do that he's the boss he can do whatever that one kelly wants we jump ahead here june of that year, Eisner gets to reveal that Disney has finished negotiations for a $35 million new World Showcase pavilion. original name of this thing was Norway Gateway to Scandinavia.
0: Okay, so that explains the Scandinavian theme for the rest of it, okay.
1: But again, key difference between the 20 million dollar morocco pavilion and the 35 million dollar norway pavilion is this one at eisner's insistence has a ride Uh, has a ride not Uh, only a ride but a thrilling ride where at one point you go backwards down a hill so
0: eisner is the one that decided to put the ride in but mexico had a boat ride
1: but a thrilling boat ride thrilling ride yeah and that 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 was the whole point that eisner was like this park needs characters this needs thrills one month later he gets to announce captain eo It says this 3D space fantasy will be a permanent new attraction at Epcot Center at Walt Disney World in Orlando.
0: As permanent as anything is, sure.
1: During this period where Eisner just kept hammering on them and hammering on them about, what else are we going to do? What else are we going to do? They flat out admit in press releases from this period that the fall at Walt Disney World during this time in the company's history Mm -hmm. was the slow period. So they actually talk about how starting in October of 1985, at Epcot, only on Saturdays and Sundays, mm-hmm. they were going to present a new show called Scalidoscope, which was the show that involved 60 different vehicles. I mean, ultralights and jets. Yeah, I've, seen,
0: I've seen highlights of it. You told me about it one time, and I didn't believe it existed. Oh, and then no I went way. out and did some uh, some Google. Yes, it's crazy. Yeah, speaking but, of uh, things that OSHA would probably never approve of.
1: No doubt. But this whole time, here is Michael Eisner having to throw money. At Epcot,
0: After spending a billion dollars to build it, right?
1: Yeah, and it's just killing him because all he can think about is if I had been in the meetings initially, what I would have done differently with Epcot... He has this project that started at $400 million that eventually cost $1.2 billion, And it's the monkey on his back. It's the thing he has to fix at Walt Disney World to, to turn around the attendance issue. Then he can be justified with the expansion of hotels and the studio and everything he wants to do. And the weird thing is, the more time he spends on Epcot, the more obsessed he becomes with it.
0: Oh, sure. That sounds like a typical Michael Eisner response.
1: Yeah. And so when it comes time for... The second gate. He's been face down in Epcot for so long, it's like, okay, now it's my turn. This time around, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it right.
0: But that's the the good part about it, because he he gets to see the experience of something that just happened hmm. with the company, building a second gate, and he knows what to do.
1: And as we'll discuss in our next uh, episode. (laughs) I knew this was
0: going to be a two-part episode. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So <laughs> All right. <in> our <laughs> next, <laughs> Chronologic <laughs> Disney will uh, will go over what he actually does. So, okay. So we set up the next episode. That's uh, that's good. Though. There you go. All right, folks. You've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. Please go into iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. Don't forget that we are produced fabulously. I might add, as always, by one Aaron Adams for Jim. This is Len. We will see you on the next show.